faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's guest is guest number three for the July, excuse me, the June month takeover. I'm fast forwarding through the summer already. Allie Bradley is the national correspondent for News Nation, and she is with me today. Allie, thanks so much for joining me. Lisa, thanks for having me. It's easy to misplace our days, right? Because you never know which way is up in the news. There's always something going on. And yeah, we're fast forwarding through the summer for sure. No doubt about it. And this is a busy news day. I mean, you are so I want to I really want to get into it because I know that you're on the front lines. You're doing a lot for News Nation and you are you're at the border. I mean, you're doing some really tremendous work there. Tell me a little bit about uh, about your beat and what you're caring about as I talk to you in your car. So you're literally like you're ready to go. So tell me a little bit about this and how this works for you. What are you covering these days? Yeah, Lisa, I am always, always, always on the go. I say I'm on assignment every single week because I rarely am actually in the place I live, which is Phoenix. I'm always at our <laughs> southern border, whether it's Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, or California. I'm somewhere along the southern border because we don't really know what's happening unless we experience it and share it. And that's something that we do really well at News Nation is we arm people with the information that we see and experience firsthand and then allow people to actually make up their minds with the information they're given. It's like old school journalism. What a concept, right? So we're down there actually living it so people can make up their minds from what they're seeing. And really what it comes down to for me, the passion behind this is not only is it a national security issue, but it's a humanitarian issue. Everyone involved in the border crisis has a story to tell. And this is a multifaceted issue and there's never a dull moment. There is always a story to tell. There is always a deeper dive to take. And when it comes to these stories that we hear, you hear from the law enforcement that are on the front lines, living, eating, breathing, sleeping this every single day. And then you hear stories from the migrants themselves who are giving up everything and living, breathing, sleeping, and eating their journey that they're going on in order to make it to the United States. And I have been really blessed to have the access that I've had because of the work I've done. I've spent almost now, gosh, it's been almost two years since I've dedicated myself and my time to the Southern border. I first started going down there. I actually took a trip, Lisa, with my mom almost two years ago uh, because the people that were supposed to go with me bailed. And so my mom actually went down with me. We did a border tour basically from one end of the border to the other in Texas and spent a lot of time trying to understand it trying to digest it because it's a lot. And that's what we're here for at News Nation is we're trying to break it into pieces so you can digest it a little bit easier because it's a lot. The border is so nuanced and there is so much going on with it. You can't just just open it up and go, oh, I understand this. So that's what we're here to do. We're here to walk you through all of the nuances that are happening along the southern border each day because it's changing every day. Today, right now, what we're dealing with is CBP-1 apps. Our um, people that are coming up to the Laredo port of entry are being turned away because there's so much violence in Nuevo Laredo, which is on the other side of the border. So that's the story we're really focusing on right now is the dangers that migrants are facing on this journey. Um, We know that Border Patrol agents are being shot at as well down along the southern border. So, I mean, when people say it's like a war zone, 
sometimes it feels like one down there. Three migrants were just shot in the legs by Mexican um, gang members, basically, Mexican bandits, as these people were running out of Mexico into the United States. So the, the Border Patrol, Boar Star, it's kind of their EMT unit, responded and is helping these three migrants with gunshot wounds to their legs. I mean, this is where we are along our southern border. And so you've got places like Laredo saying, hey, it's not safe enough for people to even use the CBP-1 app and cross here. That's our neighbor to the south. So yeah. that is something that we try really hard to allow people to see and to make sense of for themselves, because there's a lot of narratives out there when it comes to the southern border. We try to sift through some of that noise a little bit and help people digest it a little easier. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. And it is, it's a hard concept because, and I remember I've told this story to lots of your colleagues that, that are covering the border. I remember working on the Hill. This is a long, 17 years ago now. And we were talking about a wall and I remember our policy people sort of trying to do the autopsy for me, help me understand that a wall is not practical because so much of the border is is different, right? So you talk about Laredo being one of the entry points, but I, from my understanding is that each and every entry point is different. Some are mountainous, some are, um, are very open, they're all very different. And so you spend a lot of your time really navigating that and being in a lot of different places. How do you find because so much of the reporting you do really does help illustrate both sides, and it's not even two sides, there's many, many, many sides to this story. Do you find that the folks that are there are open and appreciative of the work that you're doing? Are they grateful that you're helping tell their story for them? Yeah, for the most part, they are. When I first started covering this, it was a lot harder to get access, right? Because a lot of the conversations that swirl around the border Um, Either you're on one side or the other. And if you're on one side, then you're fully in support and you're a a xenophobe, basically, to to some people. And if you're on the other side, then you're trying to paint the Border Patrol agents and the sheriffs and all the law enforcement as bad guys, right? So Mm -hmm. it just depends on where you are. So when you first interact with these individuals along the southern border, whether it be law enforcement or migrants, everyone thinks that you have a loaded story to tell, right? So no one really has the trust for you. No one really wants to talk to you because they think you have an agenda. You're going to paint this story in some way. And so everyone is hesitant to talk, whether it be, like I said, a a law enforcement individual or a migrant. The migrants feel the same. Are you going to rake us through the coals right now? And so you have to be down there 
living this, experiencing it and gaining that trust. And that is what fortunately, by the grace of God, I've been able to do. And the stories I have told, I will tell you this, Lisa, I've been very, very, very blessed that I have not yet had backlash where it's been like what you've put out was not accurate or was not from our voice or from our standpoint, or it doesn't, isn't the correct depiction of what we want out there. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, even when it's the bad stuff that Border Patrol doesn't want, agents actually support it and encourage it because they want the truth out there. I had to do a whole piece on agent corruption. Do you think my sources were super excited about me drawing attention to the bad parts of of Customs and Border Protection? No, but it is the reality. It is the good, bad, or indifferent pieces of this, just like immigration and the illegal sides of it. Yes, there are people that deserve a chance and that are seeking asylum, but we know that is a small percentage. We know the vast majority of people right now are breaking a lot to get into the country right now. And, you know, you talk about the wall and we come down here with these ideas of what we expect law enforcement and people to say. And it's really interesting because the wall serves a lot of purposes. So you're right. There are a lot of areas where mother nature has done the job and there is a natural barrier. We don't need it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of law enforcement say it's a tool that you need because it's the hammer and the nail, right? You need the wall and you need agents. You need the whole, all of the pieces. But what's so interesting here is one of the sheriffs told me that the wall serves as a clear symbol of trespass. That is so profound. Because that makes sense. Okay, when you breach that barrier, you know you're breaking the law. You know you have trespassed, right? It's not a Normandy barrier. It's not a little chicken wire fence. It's a barrier. So that's why law enforcement say, duh, it's trespassing. That's why we like it. And it does slow them down, right? You build a 40-foot wall, they're going to build a 41-foot ladder. We've seen it. We watch it. But it does slow them down. It's not 150 people coming through the wall. It's one by one. So it is a deterrent a little bit. But the most fascinating piece, Lisa, is that the migrants see the wall as a beacon of hope. The wall is there is what they look for as a symbol. And then once they get on the other side, they're free. They're in they They have made it to freedom. They look for the wall. So while we sit there and say it's a symbol of trespassing, they look at it as a symbol of hope. So, you know, it's all in the conversations and it's all in the enforcement. But the long and short of it is the people are still coming. The numbers might be down, but we are still getting at least 1,200 people a day crossing at the ports of entry, that's through the CBP-1 app, that are not being added to the encounter numbers because those aren't arrests. Those aren't apprehensions. Those are legal entries. Sure. You look at, you know, the Biden administration kind of doing a victory lap right now saying, hey, we've got numbers down and they have. Illegal entries are down. So they just pushed people to the port. So now we're looking at around 3,500 illegal entries, but around 1,250 legal entries a day. So we're still looking at very similar numbers. It's just a shell game. Sure. And and the other thing, too, now that Title 42 has been lifted, um, and for some people, for people who are sort of catching up, that's the restriction that was put in place during COVID to keep people from coming across that now that the um, emergency designation has been lifted, Title 42 has also. Um, and there's lots of politics in there, too, but I'm talking about mm-hmm. facts only. Um, I am surprised that the numbers haven't been bigger, haven't been more, that the push to get across hasn't been more than what we, because we were really anticipating that there were a Mm -hmm. lot of folks waiting. Is that what you're seeing there firsthand? 
Well, here's the thing. So a lot of people expected a surge. We did see one. We saw 29,000 people in CBP custody ahead of the end of Title 42. Now, a lot of people didn't think there was going to be a surge post Title 42. And here's why. Because there were supposed to be stricter consequences and stricter enforcement after Title 42. So I reported this. I talked about this. The cartel is in a holding pattern right now. They're playing a waiting game. DHS has said it. 650,000 people are waiting in Mexican states, waiting to come here. 100,000 were just in border states along that, waiting for Title 42 to end. So where did they all go? They're still there. But guess what? We know the cartel's in control. They have to figure out how we're enforcing this law. Are we sending people back with a five-year ban and ineligibility for asylum? Are we doing these things? Well, Mm. I'll tell you the answer. We're not. Mm. And they're seeing it. So guess what? Numbers are going back up again. The Del Rio sector seeing upwards of 700 people again. We're seeing the surges happening again. But like I reported, it took some time. The cartel needed some time to say, hey, is the U.S. going to enforce this? Are they going to arrest the people we're sending across? Is our bottom line going to be impacted and how? So they had to wait a couple of weeks, Lisa. So now we're a month removed from it. And we're seeing the numbers. And guess what else? Human smuggling hasn't gone down. We just did a report on Cochise County, which is basically the epicenter. They're in the Tucson sector, which leads the nation in gotaways and fentanyl seizures. Mm. They are tripling the amount of pursuits from April, from April to May. When we should have seen the the numbers go down too, right? Tripled. 13 pursuits in April, 36 in May. Oh my goodness. So that's why our job is so important right now as journalists. We're supposed to hold the administration accountable. The administration is saying, look, guys, we got numbers down. Well, the American people need to understand what's happening Yeah. because the numbers went down. The surge, the big groups, yes, they went down because they're going to the ports now and the people are still coming and we're still down here reporting on it. Yeah, no, and it's it's really important. And the other thing, too, that I've learned over the course of time is that the cartels, and you can tell me if you know this, too, you most likely do, um, some of them have really seen that there is this is an opportunity, money opportunity, right? And so plenty of them have left behind their other nefarious behavior and the human smuggling and the getting people to the border and over the border is now their new business. And that's how they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars. You're right. It's disgusting. And I've said this multiple times. So this is, this is what is so messed up about it. Lisa is people are more lucrative than drugs. Because they can be used multiple times. When I say disgusting, it's disgusting. Yeah. So drugs go across the border once. That fentanyl is gone, right? That person, they are in the hands of the cartel for life. They pay them once. They get three tries to get over. That's first. But say they get over, okay? Now the cartel knows you're Lisa Miller. Well, I know your mom and your grandma, and I know your family. And if your family, heaven forbid, is still in Venezuela, guess what? We'll we'll watch your mom for you, Lisa. And every step of the way, every stash house you go to to get to your final destination, you got to pay the piper. And the cartel knows that. And the cartel keeps you under lock and key forever. So you might be working here, but you still got to pay the cartel because they allowed you to come in. How sad. That, I mean, and that's it's awful. And so and the desperation that all the people that are that are coming over are really feeling. I mean, the number that I had heard in terms of illegals that are doing that are the bad illegals, right, is less than one percent. Like the number is really small for those that are the bad guys coming across. It's people, innocent people that are looking for opportunity, the land of opportunity, which is what the 
you know, the American dream really is. And so that alone is like, it's such good reporting and such good work that you're doing there. How in the world, Allie, did you get into this line of work? You said you've been doing this for two years, but tell me, like, how did you arrive here? Like, how did you get to this trip with your mom to figure out that the border was your next assignment? You know, we, we joked in the very beginning of this conversation, you don't even know which way is up. That's kind of like my journey. It's all been God. Um, every single thing that I have crossed into in my pathway that I have come into contact with good, bad, and indifferent has been God. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe everything happens as it should. And I first started my journey in journalism in, in high school. I job shadowed with our like legacy station, King five news with Lori Matsukawa and just thought she was the bee's knees. I just, she could do no wrong. I thought, Oh my gosh, this is such an incredible space. This person gets to be a voice for others and gets to be uh, in the community and work amongst people that, that trust her. And what an amazing gift that God gave her. And so I first started in that space and then I went to college and started studying political science. And I thought I wanted to go report for one of our military branches. Mm-hmm. And that was right after 9-11. It was 2003. And I was like, maybe I don't want to go to the Middle East. I, I just yeah. didn't. You know, I kind of pulled the rug out from under myself and I actually transferred colleges and graduated from the Edward R. Murrow School of Communications uh, with my bachelor's in communications and ran off to LA after that and thought I'm going to be in entertainment news because at first I thought I wanted to do sports. That was my internship was at Root Sports at FSN mm-hmm. and thought I wanted to do that because it was very personality driven and it was just unfortunately still not a space for women yet. I'm going to be frank there. In yeah. 2000. Uh, seven, when I graduated college, it was still not really an open space. Um, Danica Patrick was really the only woman in the in that space. And right. Aaron Andrews hadn't really carved the way out yet. And so unfortunately, it was a lot of speculation of any good things that happened to me, it was loaded. And I didn't want that for my future. And mm-hmm. so I went in a different direction and went entertainment. Mm-hmm. Didn't love that either. So I started sending out my resume to everyone and it was by the grace of God. I started in market 197, my girl, Casper, Wyoming, making $18,000 a year, walked in as an anchor, uh, anchored and produced the morning show and just moved my way up. And at one point was the news director and actually hired and fired people. I have a guy I hired, he works in Houston now. So it's amazing to see his progress uh, from where we were. But from there, I just went on the anchor train. And then um, I ended up in Seattle, which is home. And um, I walked away from that job. And I kind of say I had too many questions that made too many people uncomfortable. And so I went independent and started digging around in things that were a little underreported, like the war in Ukraine, like the homelessness crisis in Seattle, like the border. Um, So my friend Bill Malugin with Fox News actually convinced me initially to come down. And I said, Bill, you're in an echo chamber. Everyone that knows about the border knows about it already because they're watching you. They know you're not reaching the people outside. And that was what was important to me. And I go, light bulb, I've never been on a beat. I've never had a targeted audience. I've lived in five states. I've been an anchor. Maybe people will hear it. Yeah. And so that's how I got into it. And people kind of heard it, Lisa. They kind of started opening their eyes and never saw anything in a million years about the border. And one of the sheriffs, he hosted me because his brother-in-law lives in Lake Stevens, which is where my mom lived. And he knew nothing about the border and said, we got to get this out. So it just started. And I was there for the the crisis in Del Rio where 16,000 Haitians were under the bridge. I was embedded with the sheriff. And then I didn't understand it. 
So I went down and I walked with a caravan of 6,000 people for two weeks in Tapachula because I didn't, I I had to experience it, right? I had to understand what they left, why they left. I had to be able to talk to them. And once they come across and they're in border patrol custody, you can't talk to them. So I spent time learning and went down there and walked with a caravan. And that was one of the most um, influential times in my life was one of the most, um, eye-opening experiences I've ever had well, in my life. And one of the most dangerous ones too. I, I, well, yeah, for sure. Because there's so much, and you did that on your own. I mean, you were, you were yeah. out in your own independent space and you said, this is what I need to do to get better at my job. Your passion is palpable for this beat. <laughs> and you. that is, and it's awesome. I mean, honestly, like we're so lucky, uh, us consumers of, of good news are so lucky to have someone like you who's so passionate about Thank this, you. this, this work that you're doing. Um, I know faith is super important to you. And I know that's something that really drives you every day. And it's clear and not only in the, in the answers that you've shared with me, but also in your public persona and, and such a big part of that. Um, but it has to be challenging, right? As much as you put your faith in, in God. Um, also too, like being there must make you, it must challenge that faith from time to time, because this is such a difficult and a very personal and human, um, crisis that you're covering every day. Yeah. It's really difficult because I always ask myself, I literally wear, what would Jesus do bracelet? (laughs) And I ask that a lot. And the way I do my job, Lisa, every day is human first human first, God first, human first. That's how I treat agents. That's how I treat law enforcement. That's how I treat migrants. And what the public does with that from there is up to them. Mm -hmm. I go at every single interview, every conversation I have with respect and dignity, not with an agenda, not with the fact that I'm going to use this to my advantage. I genuinely want to know what is going on what their struggle is, um, like I said, for migrants and law enforcement, because we know law enforcement are struggling as well. Of course, but it's tough because Jesus tells us to to help everyone, right? Mm-hmm. To help everybody. Um, but in the Bible, there are also boundaries, mm-hmm. and there are also things and laws that are upheld. Um, so it's a struggle. It is for sure. But what's the beauty of all of this is, Lisa, that's not my decision to make. Right. As a journalist, it's not my decision to make, and it's not my opinion to interject. I get to go experience this and I get to see the struggle. I am honored and, and, and blessed to be a part of all of this. And then I get to turn around and show you and you determine how it makes you feel. Yeah. And so therefore God took a lot of that challenge away from me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to live in that struggle because I don't have to make that decision. Well, that's what, I mean, it's, and it's wonderful that that is, that is what drives you and really sort of keeps you doing and reporting this important news. And I'm grateful to you for that. Um, Tell me, as we get to the end of our conversation, I know you've got a live shot, you've got to step out to and do the reporting that you do. Um, But I always have to ask, uh, first off, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming to me live from your car, (laughs) (laughs) from the border. Um, Who should I talk to next, Allie? Who should be my next guest? Well, if you want to stay on the border topics, there are two retired border patrol agents. One is a recently retired chief, Chris Clem with the Yuma uh, Border Patrol sector, just retired in December, and he is very vocal and has been an advocate for agents. Another one is JJ Carroll. He recently retired. He was a sector chief, um, and a sector chief in charge in the San Diego sector. 
also recently retired and very vocal on the struggles agents face, which I think is a really, really important piece that I unfortunately can tell you, but I don't live it. So I can't um, share exactly what they feel. Now, when it comes to journalists, she is not a journalist with us, but she's incredible. Her name is Brandy Cruz. She has been fighting for parents and advocating um, for parental rights in Washington state. She is an independent journalist. She hosts a podcast called The Divide. Um, actually, it might be the undivided now. She went off on her own. It might be undivided, um, but she is wonderful. Her name is Brandy Cruz, and she is in the thick of it and one of the most contentious states in our nation and always has just really, really interesting insight into what's going on in, in the northwest part of our country. I love that. I, lo- I love all three of those recommendations. Thank you. Thank you so much. I um, And like I said, you know, the, the thing about the podcast is that it's a conversation with people like yourself that are on the front lines, but also not not even just journalism, but journalism adjacent, because so much of our work is, is reliant on others, right? The news, the stories that you tell every day are dependent on these great relationships and these great connections that you're making right there on the front lines. So Allie, I can't tell you enough. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank and I'm you. so excited to share this this episode with our, with our guests. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, Lisa. Be well. Take care of yourself. Remember, you can't uh, pour from an empty cup, my friend. Great advice for all of us. Thank you, Allie. Take care. And there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast in partnership with PR Daily and coming soon to a platform near you on Big Week Podcasts. See you next week.